Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, 2 Kings chapter 9. And as a boulder goes faster and faster down a steep hillside, so we see Israel and Judah tumbling out of control down their own slippery slope towards God's wrath by means of their idolatry, their apostasy. And just as the physics of inertia dictate that momentum is gained as an object speeds ahead unimpeded, so it was that the northern and southern kingdoms had gained so much momentum that they were now headed towards an unstoppable collision with destruction and exile. The book of 2 Kings has been charting Israel and Judah's self-inflicted apostasy and how it happened. And how it happened was essentially because of bad leadership. Now it's not because a faithful people were somehow taken over by unfaithful kings. Rather it was a symbiotic relationship as the people displayed less and less obedience to their heavenly king and to his ideal word, the Torah, God gave them the kind of leaders that their confused minds wanted and their hardened hearts deserved. Then these leaders added more evil energy to Israel and Judah's fall away from Yehovah and most of the Hebrew citizens just merely followed along like blind sheep. Thus, even more momentum was added to the Israelites' determination to divine for themselves what was truth, what was justice, what was morality, how much of following God was even needed anymore. So, Yehovah intervened as the only force large enough to redirect this speeding boulder of apostasy, and as he always does, he used a few good men to bring about his word of truth to his people for those who have the ears to listen. These few good men were his prophets, led in the era we have been reading about by Elijah and Elisha. But as he also always does, the Lord forces no one to obey him. He speaks through his commandments and through his oracles to his people In the ear of the kings, he spoke through his prophets. And he tells them of the blessings and all the benefits associated with obedience and the curses and the catastrophes associated with disobedience. Then, it's left up to the people. It's left up to the nation's leaders to choose. And the book of 2 Kings makes it sadly clear what the choice was. By the time we come to the final pages of this book, the kingdom of Israel will have been exiled. The ten northern tribes scattered, dispersed all over the Asian continent, and the kingdom of Judah will have been marched off to Babylon as a community of captives, left to suffer their well-earned humiliation on foreign soil for 70 years. Well, since it was way back in the book of Genesis, 
that we discuss the issue of choices. I want to review it. First of all, there's two basic kinds of choices put before all humans. Moral choices and preferences. Now, moral choices are the product of our will. Preferences are the product of our intellect. Moral choices are, uh, are not the same thing as preferences. God gave us wills not in order that we can make preferences, but in order to make moral choices. Therefore, moral choices involve right and wrong, evil and good. Preferences are those things God has given for us to choose from that have no element of right or wrong to them per se. Now, moral choice, however, is completely wrapped up in our obedience to God's commandments. To obey is moral. To disobey is immoral. To choose to cheat, steal, lie, murder, or be sexually deviant are moral choices. Thus, those things are well defined by God's commandments. But to choose chocolate over vanilla, to drive a Toyota instead of a Buick, to become an engineer instead of a truck driver, to wear blue instead of yellow, these things are all preferences. So they're not defined. They're not regulated by God's commandments. Now inevitably, (coughs) a sign of unfaithfulness and falling away from God is when a person or a society chooses to transform moral choices into preferences. That is something that at one time was understood as a moral issue of right or wrong is now seen as a matter of enlightened personal liberty that carries no stigma, no divine consequences. Another sign of unfaithfulness and falling away from God is when a person or a society chooses to redefine his commandments, to redefine the definition of morality. That is, certain things that don't become preferences, but rather we have literally reversed the moral status of a behavior. What God calls good, we now call evil. What God calls evil, we now call good. Thus, in such a circumstance, to follow God faithfully often means to be in conflict with your peers or your society, even with your government. And yet another sign of unfaithfulness and falling away from God is when we choose to be willfully ignorant of God's word and or we prefer to rely on the glib words. the the philosophical, the political and religious doctrines of our leaders and the comfortable and familiar traditions of men that tend to change and conform with the times and the culture. We see all these signs of unfaithfulness and falling away from Jehovah occurring in 2 Kings. And unless one is either a non-believer or completely spiritually blind... We see all these signs all around us today. God's pattern of how he deals with people and with nations in this regard 
began early in the Torah. It continues right on through Revelation. Which means that how he dealt with his people in the biblical days is how he's going to deal with his people of present and future days. Something to keep in mind. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 410. 2 Kings chapter 9. We're going to read it all. Kind of a long chapter. Elisha the prophet summoned one of the guild prophets and said to him, Prepare for traveling. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to remote Gilead. And when you get there, look for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Enter, have him step away from his companions and take him to an inside room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, This is what Adonai says. I have anointed you king over Israel. And after that, open the door and get away from there as fast as you can. (laughs) So the young prophet left for remote Gilead. And when he arrived, he found the senior army officer sitting there and he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Yeo asked, which one of us? For you, commander, he said. Well, Jehu got up and went into the house, and then the prophet poured the oil on his head and said to him, This is what, the Adonai, uh, what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I have anointed you king over the people of Adonai, over Israel. You will attack the house of Ahab, your master, so that I can avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of all the servants of Adonai, blood shed by Isabel, Jezebel. The entire house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every male, whether a slave or free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and the house of Basha, the son of Achiah. Moreover, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the dumping ground of Jezreel. There will be no one to bury her. And then he opened the door and fled. Jehu returned to the servants of his Lord. And one of them said to him, Is everything all right? Why did this Meshuga come to you? And he answered them, You know the kind and how they babble. They said, You're being evasive. Come on, tell us the truth. And then he said, This is exactly what he said to me and how he said it. Here is what Adonai says, I have anointed you king over Israel. At this they hurried to take each one his cloak and put it under Yehu at the top of the stairs and then they blew the shofar and proclaimed, Yehu is king! Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, formed a conspiracy against Yoram. At this time, Yoram was guarding remote Gilead, he and all Israel, because of Hazael, king of Aram. But Yoram himself had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that Aram had inflicted on him when fighting Hazael, king of Aram. If you agree, said Yehu, then don't allow anyone to leave town and take the news to Jezreel. So Jehu, riding in a chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. Akazjah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Well, the lookout standing on the watchtower in Jezreel saw Yehu's troops approaching and said, I see some troops coming. And Joram said, Have a horseman go out to meet him and ask, Are you coming in peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, The king asks if you're coming in peace. And Yehu answered, Peace? What business is that of yours? Turn around. Get behind me. The watchman reported, 
The messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. So he sent out a second man on horseback. One coming to him said, The king asked if you're coming in peace. And Eo answered, Peace? What business is that of yours? Turn around and get behind me. The watchman reported, He reached them, but he isn't coming back. Also, it looks like the driving of Yehu, Nimshi's son. He's driving like a maniac. Harness my chariot, ordered Joram. They got it ready, and the Joram king of Israel and Ahijah king of Judah, each in his chariot, went out to meet Yehu. They met him in the field of Navot, the Israelite. And when Yoram saw Yehu, he said, Are you coming in peace, Yehu? He answered, Peace? With your mother Jezebel continuing all of her cult prostitution and witchcraft? What a question! Yoram wheeled around and fled, shouting, Treachery, Akazyah! Jehu drew his bow back with all of his strength and struck Yoram between the shoulder blades. The arrow went through to his heart and he collapsed in the chariot. Pick him up, said Jehu to Bidkara's servant, and throw him into the field of Nevot, the Israeli. For remember how, when you and I were riding together with Ahav, his father, Adonai pronounced this sentence against him. Adonai says, Yesterday I saw the blood of Nevot and the blood of his sons. Also, Adonai says, I'll pay you back in this field. Therefore, pick him up and throw him into the field, in keeping with what Adonai said. But when Akazah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled on the road past Beit Hagan. Yeo pursued him and ordered, Strike him too in his chariot. So they struck him at Gur, at the Gur ascent near Yivleam. He fled to Megiddo, but there he died. His servants carried him in a chariot to Yushlaim and buried him in his tomb with his ancestors in the city of David. It was in the eleventh year of Yoram, the son of Ahav, that Ahazah had begun his rule over Judah. And when Yehu reached Jezreel and Jezebel heard of it, she put on eye makeup. She fixed her hair. She looked out the window. And as Jehu came through the city gate, she asked, Are you here in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? And looking up at the window, he said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three officers looked out towards him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood splashed onto the wall and onto the horses, and she was trampled underfoot. He went in, ate and drank, and then said, Deal with this accursed woman. Bury her, because she's a king's daughter. Well, they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than her skull, feet, and hands. So they came back and told him. And he said, This is what Adonai said through his servant Eliao, Elijah from Tishbi. In the field of Jezreel, the dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel. Jezebel's corpse in the field of Jezreel will be like dung on the ground, unrecognizable as Jezebel. Well, this chapter is set up, of course, by the previous one. And in chapter 8, we learn that the kings of Judah and Israel had not only adopted some unwholesome characteristics, shall we say, they were closely blood-related. And in the last couple of verses of chapter 8, we were given an account of how Yeoram, 
king of Israel, joined with Ahaziah, king of Judah, to go off and fight the forces of Aram that were led by their new king, Hazael. This was the fellow that Elisha had anointed as king of Aram at God's order. Well, the place of battle was called Remote Gilead. This was a fortress city that was at one time an Israelite possession that lay in the territory of Gad. Now, let me take just a moment to explain something that happens more frequently in the Bible than than some might realize. And not knowing this can cause Bible readers to either think they've discovered an error or they miss the intent altogether. It is common to have one uh, to have more than one name assigned to the same city or person. And as applies especially to a person, there's a number of reasons for that. Sometimes it's simply a matter of two different translators transliterating a Hebrew name into English, but each of them applying different methods to do their transliteration. Sometimes it was due to a dialect change over the hundreds of years that the Bible was written and added on to and that older names changed to newer names. Sometimes it's a matter of our not understanding the nuances of the Hebrew language and culture. Now notice the case of the name of the king of Judah, Ahaziah, as we see it here in 2 Kings. If we turn to 2 Chronicles 21, don't go there, 2 Chronicles 21, we find this same person mentioned, but by what seems to be an entirely different name. An error? Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 21, 16 through 18. Then Adonai aroused against Eoram the spirit of the Philistines and of the Arabs near the Ethiopians. And they came up to attack Judah and they broke in and carried off all the personal property that they could find in the royal palace as well as his children and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. After all this, Adonai struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Here's the point. This Yeho Ahaz of Second Chronicles is exactly the same person as our Ahaz Yah of Second Kings. And in fact, they're exactly the same name. Notice that Yeho Ahaz consists of two Hebrew words, Yeho and Ahaz. Yeho is a word for God. Ahaz means to seize or to take possession of something. Now look at Ahaziah. It also consists of two Hebrew words. Ahaz and Yah. Yah is another word that means God and Ahaz we just discussed. So with Yeho Ahaz and Ahaziah, we simply have the identical name with the two terms or attributes of that name, God and seized, given in reverse order. Ahaz is the first word of Ahaziah, the last word of Yeho Ahaz. Yah and Yeho are essentially the same word. So it's a bit easier to see when it's in Hebrew. It's nearly impossible to notice when it's in English. And this is more typical than one might expect in the Bible. And it causes all sorts of confusion and suspicions about typos and copyist errors and redactions when it's not. Now during the battle for remote Gilead, 
Yehoram was seriously wounded, seriously enough that he had he, he was taken to his palace in Jezreel so that he could be cared for and so he, he could recover. <coughs> Akazyah at some point joined him there as, as a show of support and uh, mutual loyalty. Well, verse 1 of chapter 9 explains that Elisha had received another oracle from God. And so at the same time that Yehoram and Ahazah were in Jezreel, he instructed one of his guild prophets to grab up a flask of anointing oil to travel across the Jordan River to remote Gilead. And when he got there, he was to look up Yehu, Jehu, the commander of Judah's and Israel's joint expeditionary military forces who had set up their headquarters inside this city. Well, this means, of course, that Israel had defeated Aram in the battle for remote Gilead, at least for now. Now, some years earlier, <clears throat> the Lord had given Eliel, Elijah, the dual missions of anointing Hazael as king of Syria, king of Aram, and of anointing Yehu as king of Judah. Both Hazael and Yehu were anointed for the same purpose. They were to be God's instruments to bring an end to the wicked dynasty of Ahav, which had begun with his father, Omri. But since the Lord deemed that there seemed to be some element of repentance shown by King Ahav, he postponed his divine judgment for one generation. Since during that time of delay, Eliel would be spirited off this earth by the Lord, the mission then fell to Elisha to anoint these two men, Hazael and Jehu, to become kings, one of them a Gentile, one of them a Hebrew. Now, Elisha personally traveled to Damascus, and he anointed the Gentile Syrian army commander, Hazael. But now, Elisha would delegate the duty to anoint the Israelite army commander, Yehu, to one of the guild prophets that he oversaw. We aren't given a reason as to why Elisha didn't go himself. Yehu was the son of Jehoshaphat, who was the son of Nimshi, we're told. Now, it's unusual to include both the father and a grandfather's name when identifying a person. And so, both Hebrew and English scholars believe that the purpose is to highlight the name of Nimshi, which is probably the name of a clan, not so much a person. In other words, Nimshi was likely not Jehu's grandfather. Thus, this particular Jehoshaphat is probably not the King Jehoshaphat of Judah, but rather another Jehoshaphat who belonged to this clan called Nimshi. In fact, some rabbis claim that Yehu wasn't even of the tribe of Judah, but rather that this Nimshi was a clan that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Now, this is a tradition, and there's no evidence to collaborate it, so we're just going to have to move on with Jehu's ancestry, kind of a mystery. However, there is nothing in the story that would automatically disprove the theory of Yehu being of the tribe of Manasseh. So, in verse 3, 
The guild prophet is told to go and find Yehu and pour the oil over his head, pronounce him as king of Israel. Now, here is one of those circumstances where the meaning of the word Israel becomes a little bit hazy. Whether it was meant to communicate that Jehu was to become king over the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, or king over all Israel, the combined Judah and Israel, that's not entirely clear. I think that it probably indeed meant all Israel. And in fact, as the story goes along, we're going to see Yehu dispose of both the king of Judah and the king of Israel, no more than a few days apart. So I suspect that at least in his mind, he was to be king over both kingdoms. And we don't see anything to say that he might have been mistaken. And he probably was considered by much of the Hebrew population as king over both kingdoms for at least a short time, since the other two kings were now dead by his hand. While this whole new reality got sorted out. Now notice that Elisha no doubt figured out on his own that the timing was finally right to anoint Jehu as king. See, prophets were often allowed to use their own common sense. Especially when it seemed that circumstances had at last aligned to uh, allow God's instructions to be carried out. Yehu was concurrently located far away from the royal palace. Yehoram king of Israel was wounded and he was in Jezreel. And Akajah king of Judah was at his side. So the guild prophet could go to Yehu without fear of the kings finding out what he was up to. Nonetheless, this was a dangerous mission with lots of ways for it to go wrong. And once the message was delivered to Yehu and he was anointed as king, this guild prophet was told by Elisha to hightail it out of the city immediately. Now notice that after anointing him, the prophet also informed Jehu why the Lord had made him king. And it was so that he could completely destroy the dynasty of Ahav, Ahab in fulfillment of God's promise to do so. Even more, it was so that the blood of the many prophets of Jehovah that Ahab's government had killed on account of Queen Jezebel could be avenged. In fact, the Hebrew Talmud scholar A. Barbanel points out that the wiping out of Ahab's descendants was meant as a condition put upon Yehu by the Lord God of Israel for receiving and keeping the throne. And there's no doubt that Yehu took the terms of his promotion quite seriously as a very real proposition given to him by Yehovah, even though of course it benefited him greatly to be given carte blanche by God himself to wipe out the families of both the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And notice that it was because of the intermarriage between the families of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel that this this execution order to bring about God's vengeance 
could be extended not only to the monarchy of the northern kingdom that had been directly ruled by Ahav's dynasty, but now also to the southern kingdom that had been influenced, although not directly ruled, by Ahav's dynasty. And thus, Yehu could realistically become king over all Israel and not just the northern ten tribes. You know, the idea of God's vengeance is very uncomfortable for Christians. Does it bother you personally? You know, in fact, it's often flatly rejected as something that doesn't extend beyond the Old Testament God. Dispensationalists often say that starting in the New Testament, vengeance as a mode of divine justice ends. The Hebrew word for avenge is nakam. And there's no question that punishment and retribution for something is its clear intent. But let me assure you that divine vengeance is alive and well. And it will be part of Christ's mission when He returns. Revelation 6, 9 and 10 says this, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. And they cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign ruler HaKodesh, the true one, how long will it be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? In Revelation 19.1, After all these things, I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! The victory, the glory, the power of God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her whoring. He has taken vengeance on her who has the blood of His servants on her hands. The notion that the New Testament God and His Messiah are pacifists and that divine blood vengeance is a thing of the past is pure fantasy. It seems as though some denominations have created their own non-biblical theology that divine vengeance is even bad. But nothing could be more appropriate than God taking the lives of His foes as divine justice. It has been so since Genesis. It will remain so until the new heavens and earth appears at the end of the millennial kingdom period. What we think about it, or whether it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, that just doesn't matter. It's also a God pattern that He will use a wicked man to bring about earthly punishments of His own chosen people. Only rarely do we see in Holy Scripture a supernatural punishment upon God's people. Most of the time, it's in the form of a Gentile enemy being given heavenly permission to affect some kind of oppression upon the rebellious Israelites. We need to recall that the many decades of the Lord's intervention to try to wake up the Israelites to their precarious position before Him had failed. Using Elijah and Elisha, He had brought famines, sieges upon key Israelite cities, droughts, wars, and even a foreign queen, Jezebel, 
had been allowed to rule over Israelite as an, Israel as an Israelite monarch in order to bring internal oppression upon the Hebrews. All of this to no avail. Each successive Israelite king was worse than the one he replaced. And the people themselves became numb. They became immune to the reasons for all of these catastrophes. And they simply increased their idolatry and their immoral behavior. Even in the end times, we're going to see the ultimate evil man. The Antichrist used to punish Jehovah's Jewish people who still, for the most part, will not accept Yeshua as their Messiah. Therefore, instead of prophets, a very different kind of ambassador of God's heavenly justice will now be employed. A cold-blooded killer. Two killers, in fact. Time for judgment. Hazael of Syria and Jehu of Israel are going to go on blood rampages. Much of it authorized by God. The Lord is still warning mankind to this day through His teachers and prophets. The pagan world is of course mostly deaf to it. But amazingly, much of the church is also. And soon the merciful warnings and the survivable catastrophes that the world's been enduring over these last several decades, they're going to turn to something else. Severe judgment. The opportunity to turn away from apostasy and wickedness will end. And the great reaper will be turned loose. Revelation 14, 14 through 20. Then I looked. And there before me was a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. The one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of fire. And he called in a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because they're ripe. The angel swung his sickle down onto the earth. He gathered the earth's grapes. He threw them into the great winepress of God's fury. The wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. So you see what's about to happen in 2 Kings is but a shadow and an illustration of what's going to happen in the modern era a few years from now. It's inevitable. And the anointed Jehu would indeed slay the idolatrous Baal worshippers of Israel led by descendants of Ahav and Jezebel who had perverted the worship of Jehovah. But it's not in righteous anger that he did this. Rather it was for personal gain and power. 
Verse 9 continues God's word to Yehu as to why he's being given this mission to wipe out the royal family of Ahab by saying that the house of Ahab, Ahav, will be like the house of Jeroboam and the house of Basha. And the idea is that these two former Israelite dynasties were also ended because of their rebellion against Jehovah. Further, Queen Jezebel will die and be eaten by wild dogs and not properly buried. Now one can imagine the scene as these other two military officers at remote Gilead that had been sitting there when this guild prophet showed up and then took Jehu into another room to talk with him, we're sitting there wondering, what's going on here? So when the guild prophet leaves, and Jehu comes back out, they start pestering him to tell him what was said. Well, we get an interesting insight into these men's attitudes about God's prophets. When they ask what this Moshuga has to say. See, Moshugah is Hebrew for crazy or for idiot. At first, Yehu says, it doesn't make any difference because, you know, these prophet guys, they just babble stuff. It doesn't mean anything. It's all just religious nonsense. But they press him. And he tells them that this prophet has anointed him king. Well, suddenly, this prophet isn't such a Moshugah after all. He's not such an idiot. I mean, they're ecstatic. They instantly understood and instantly acknowledged Yehu as king and they blew the shofar as their traditional announcement that a new king has been coronated. Well, did they necessarily believe that this rather common prophet, one of thousands of rival prophets running around throughout the land at this time, had an actual legitimate message from Yehovah that they ought to believe and act upon? Eh, maybe marginally. The content of the message was certainly pleasing enough, and certainly something they wanted to believe because it served them well. And as a result of this good news, Jehu's two closest officers would soon become this new king's right-hand men. And with it would be great wealth and power. Further, when they put any stock into this, whether they put any stock into this Moshuga prophet was irrelevant. What was more important was that the people of Israel sure did. Elisha was so popular and respected that when he anointed someone for anything or announced a word from the Lord, the people accepted it without hesitation. So when Yehu assumed the throne, Elisha would vouch for him that he was indeed God's choice and thus fully legitimate. And when Yehu started killing off the current monarchies and all of their families, Elisha would vouch this was indeed per God's instructions. And from Yehu's perspective, he was given an opportunity he could have never dreamed of. Not only is he king, but he's been given full authority by God to kill off all rivals to the throne and the people won't see him in a bad light because of it. In fact, they'll see him as obedient, as righteous. 
Even more, to what extent Jehu and his two sidekicks actually believed in Yehovah, they wouldn't have to worry in the back of their minds about facing God's curses for murdering scores, perhaps hundreds, of Hebrew people. You know, as we read the book of Kings, it's really hard not to see a direct parallel to our days. Many of our politicians and government officials speak into cameras in respectful tones about Christianity and the church, even of their own faith. But on the other hand, to other audiences, they'll also admit that they consider people who take God, the Bible, and their faith too seriously as a little bit off. As Meshuggah. Crazy people. People who ignorantly cling too closely to their Bibles and their guns. But do they still want our help and our votes? Oh, of course. And they're willing to play the game. Say what we want to hear, what we want to believe in order to get it. Yeah, maybe we are a little Meshuga. <laughs> in verse 14, we're told that Jehu wasted no time. His first order of business was for his men guarding the city to make sure that no one left remote Gilead. That way he could reasonably assure that King Jehoram remained unaware of this God-ordained coup that had just taken place. So Jehu hopped onto his war chariot and taking a contingent of his most loyal troops with him, he went off in haste towards the king of Israel's palace in Jezreel. Now, secrets of this magnitude are just too hard to keep quiet for very long, so immediate action was necessary. Well, the tower watchman at Jezreel saw a chariot and a company of troops approaching, and he reported it to his superior. And when the properly cautious Yeram got word, he ordered that a soldier be sent out with a message to whoever it was. Do you come in peace? Well, when the first writer approached Jehu, he made the inquiry in the name of the king, and Jehu responded arrogantly that his business wasn't the writer's concern and ordered the king's messenger to fall in line with his soldiers. Well, when Yehoram heard what happened, he sent out a second messenger, but with the same results. The watchman then told the king that this frenetic style of driving his chariot reminded him of the way that Jehu drove his So the king decides it must be Jehu and decides to go meet him personally. Big mistake. When the king confronts Jehu and asks if he come in peace, Jehu proceeds to make insulting comments about the queen mother, Jezebel, and makes it clear peace was not his aim. Uh Uh-oh. King Jehoram instantly bolts, knowing he's in trouble. And he yells out a warning to King Ahaz, who had gone out with him, that Yehu's coming was treachery. It wasn't peace. Well, the warrior Jehu drew back his powerful bow. And before Yehoram could get very far, he shot him with an arrow between his shoulder blades that pierced through to his heart, killing him. But that was only the beginning of Jehu's rampage. We'll continue that story next time.